so Sermon of the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Hopefully you have read Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Um, we can find sort of many moral teachings throughout the Gospels, but the central and most distinctive text is Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, which is a sort of summation of Christ's moral teachings. You can say that Matthew potentially, in the, the, the ways that were written in antiquity, took a lot of the different teachings from Christ and compiled them, gathered them in this long discourse uh, to, the, to the crowds there. Now Luke has the Sermon of the Plains, basically four Beatitudes and four Curses. But we're going to focus mostly on, or exclusively on, Matthew, because it is the, the most common on one, it is the most important one. And so here in the Sermon of the Mount, Christ is presented as the new Moses who gives the new law. Uh, I, the notes that I posted from last week, I tweaked a little bit, and it was a, a greater exploration of what the new law was that I left out. So if you go back and you look at the notes, you'll find them, that I put more about from the catechism of what the new law is. Remember, we talked about the new law is ultimately the Holy Spirit, but Thomas will say that the the codification or the main text of the new law are going to be the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So you can make sort of a comparison. It's Christ is the new Moses. Moses, Christ. Moses was on Mount Sinai, which was very dark and cloudy when he received the new law. And Jesus is on top of Mount Tabor, where it certainly appears that it was beautiful and clear as he's speaking to the crowds. Uh, the mountain is that place of theophany, the place where we can speak to God in ancient cultures and where the Lord speaks to us. And so he is given the new law. Christ is giving the new law in the context of the new covenant. Uh, the Sinai covenant, here is the new covenant which will be sealed in Christ's blood. And at the beginning, I think we talked about this last time, Matthew says that Christ was on the mountain, he sat down, and he opened his mouth to teach them. The same words used in the Old Testament um, to describe Moses as he was teaching. But of course, we know that Christ is greater than Moses. As he'll say in the sermon, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, don't even lust after someone in your heart. Christ is speaking with authority because he is the Torah. He is the Logos made flesh. Pope Benedict sort of sums it up when he says, Jesus sits on the cathedra of Moses, but he does so not after the manner of teachers who are trained for the job in a school. He sits there as the greater Moses who broadens the covenant to include all nations. And so here he is speaking to the whole crowd. Remember, Jesus, uh, Matthew is interested in his gospel and the proclamation of the word to the Gentiles. And so this whole entire crowd sort of symbolizes that. So Christ is greater than Moses, so the sermon is going to be greater than the old external law, because the new law, and sort of, let's say that the sermon is the summation of the new law, speaks to the heart. It's the perfection and fulfillment of the old law, but it, does not, it doesn't abolish it. 
The commandments still remain, um, but the new law is written into the heart, not on stones, that more interior than exterior following the law, which we talked about last time. But to reemphasize, it is the Sermon on the Mount that is the central moral text for Christians, not the Ten Commandments. We love the Ten Commandments, and in a certain sense, you could say it is foundational because the sermon builds on the Ten Commandments, but the ones that mature Christians really ought to be looking at if we're going to really live in the Spirit and really live in the new law is going to be the sermon, which was important for the early church and the fathers of the church, particularly St. Augustine. Um, some of you may have seen some of the stuff that Father Pinkairs wrote about it, that after he was ordained, uh, Augustine asked for a little break to be able to go pray and work on a series of homilies on the sermons. Wouldn't that be great when y'all got ordained? You just said, Bishop, can I go on retreat for about six months? How do you think your bishop would react to that? Probably not too well. Uh it was and thing. So the sermon, and this is going to become important later. The sermon is from the very beginning of Augustine's ministry. Now, granted, Augustine was pretty well developed in his theology at the beginning of his priestly ministry, um, but it had a big development on the of moral theology throughout the history of the church. And so, although for many centuries we now, um, after after this, as we kind of talked about where the Sermon of the Mount was relegated off to the side during the period of the morals. And we went back to focusing on the Ten Commandments as the central text. And we've already sort of looked at that a little bit, that the Sermon of the Mount was more of just sort of an exhortation. Y'all, try to be holy, instead of what Augustine calls the charter for the Christian life. Very important phrase, the charter the guideline, the, the, the manuscript there that helps us give us the, 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 the tools, the pathway for being a Christian. It's the summary of the path leading to the kingdom of God. If indeed moral theology is the sequela Christi, well, then the Sermon on the Mount is a text is sort of the map of how we get there, the rules to follow along the way. And as Father Pinkair says, and I agree with him, it can be a great source of renewal for the individual and for the church as a whole. It's this great resource. And I know whenever I was first introduced to this in seminary and spending, gosh, that whole first year really praying about just Matthew 5 to 7 and reading commentary on it and, and trying to integrate it uh, it had a very profound impact on my spirituality. And so what we're going to do today is this first lesson. We're going to spend more time looking closely at the sermon, um, its structure, its meaning for the Christian life. And then the next lesson will be on Beatitudes, sort of seeing the Beatitudes in comparison to the sermon as the Decalogue to the old law. So a, a few comments on the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, uh, looking at it first within the overall context of the Gospel of Matthew. So the Gospel of Matthew begins with the infancy narrative and ends with the passion, 
death and resurrection account. And so in the, the body of the gospel, uh, from those the beginning to the end, there are sort of five discourses that Jesus gives. The Sermon on the Mount, after the initial uh, material from Matthew 1 to 4, is the first discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and it follows Christ's preaching. So remember, Christ goes out and preaching. What's the first thing he says? Not believe the good news, but repent and believe the good news. And so let's go back to this idea that we talked about of the sequela Christi, the following of Jesus to be his disciple. It begins with repentance and conversion of sin, turning away from sin to follow the Lord. And so here, Matthew's gospel, everybody repent, believe the gospel, come follow me. And here, this is how we follow the Lord. This is the the guideline, the charter for following Christ. It is the first step of discipleship. And so, as I said, when we look at Matthew's gospel as a whole, he is preaching or writing for the Gentiles. And so Ratzinger, if you look at um, his writings on Jesus of Nazareth, he notices this, that here is Jesus, who is the new Moses, but instead of speaking to just the new Israel, uh, the old Israel, just those people, he's speaking to the crowds. And so for him, discipleship isn't about being belonging to Israel, but now it is listening. Who are my mother and father, or who are my brothers and, and, and sisters and mothers? Those who hear the word of God and keep it. So everyone who is in earshot and everyone who is listening by reading the scripture passage of Matthew 7 is following Christ, is, is hearing him. So he's establishing, Ratzinger says, the new Israel, which is much broader, uh, which includes Jew and Gentile. So the sermon itself, though, there have been many commentaries which have divided the sermon. How, how do we divide it? Um, most into five parts or seven parts. Um, Augustine, whose favorite number is seven, as we'll see particularly with the Beatitudes, loves to divide everything by seven, divides it according to the Beatitudes, where he says basically each Beatitude summarizes the seven Beatitudes for Augustine, the eighth Beatitude is a summary of the seven, so he has to make sure everything is seven, that he divides the sermon into seven parts, and each is connected to one of the Beatitudes. But in, in Father Pinkers's larger exploration of the Sermon on the Mount in the Sources of Christian Ethics, which um, a lot of this is sort of based on, we'll divide it into five parts. And so what we're going to do is kind of go over these different five parts that hopefully give you a better understanding of how it's divided and allow you uh, in your own reading and praying over the sermon to digest it better. So the first part is chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, the Beatitudes. So here he is, the new Moses who sits down to give the new law. And so we're going to look at the Beatitudes themselves in the next lesson, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing that, but it is the Decalogue right up front. Here is the summary of the, the sermon, the summary of the new law. So that's the first section, the Beatitudes. The next we can call the fulfillment of the law. This is chapter 5, verses 13 to 48. 
um, and most of you are pretty pretty familiar with this, this section. It begins with the similes of salt and light, saying, okay, this is the Christian, what the Christian is supposed to be in relationship to the world. You're going to be the salt that gives flavor, the light in the darkness. But what, what, what relevance do you think that has to the moral life? Can you all guess what, what, what dimension of the, mor- the Christian's moral life uh, does this idea of salt and light have? It does, absolutely. Yes, that's exactly it. It's not just about your own sanctification, but for the conversion of others. The Christian isn't just it's me and Jesus, me and Jesus, we're going together. No, yeah, you are following the Lord, but it's going to have an impact on others. So our morality is not just private. You can also sort of connect it. It's not just about following the Ten Commandments. Oh, as long as I'm following these rules, I'm good. No. There's an evangelical dimension to the Christian moral life. By he, 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 and again, it's not just by what we do, but by who we are. You are the light of the world. Not You will act and bring light to the world. You yourself are. You are the salt of the earth. There's not, it's, not about, it's about being, not about doing. Um, which sort of goes back to what we talked about, that in the moral life there is the transformation of the person, that what's inside of us should shine forth to others. But it's not your actions are going to impact people. You, as a moral creature, you as one who follows Christ will. And then he goes on to teach more about the law. And, and this is where he says, Christ does not abolish the old law, but fulfills it in himself. He perfects it. He's bringing it to that new level. And this is the, the, the most important part of understanding Christian morality besides the fact that it is the Sequela Christi. But remember, we talked about it's not an exterior follower following. Christ is not just our exemplar. We have to have that interior transformation of Christ acting in and through us. So he's bringing the law primarily from solely exterior practices to something interior, the transformation of the heart. Of the heart. So there's the interiorization of the law. And so the more we are like Christ, the more we are able to live that new law the Spirit poured into our hearts, and the more Christ is able uh, to act and live through us. So we'll go over each of the different little um, sort of sections where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So what is he doing? He's referencing Moses. And clearly, and this might have been sort of a shock to the people who heard this, maybe not to the Gentiles because they wouldn't have fully known the teaching of Moses or adhered to it, but Christ is saying that he is greater than Moses in sort of an implied way. You have heard that it was said that you shall not kill, but I say don't even have wrath or anger in your heart towards your brother. So you can break the fifth commandment, not just in your body, but in your heart. Because it's from that interior that that hateful, vengeful, racist, 
bigoted thoughts come forth. That's one thing that, that I always will suggest you do in the confessional, um, particularly if, if someone comes and they just, it's been five years since my last confession and uh, I got said a couple of curse words and I got angry. One of the things is, let's go to the heart. Do you hold any resentment in your heart towards anyone? Is there a racist attitude? Is there a vengeful attitude? Those questions that go to the heart, particularly uh, if you suspect that someone is holding a grudge towards another person, um, is something that can be explored. Do not commit adultery, but I say don't even lust after another in your own heart. We'll look a a lot more at this uh, next semester in sexual ethics where we try to establish that theology of the body. John Paul II has the whole part on this. Blessed are the pure of heart, the interiorization of the law. The teaching about divorce. This is a reiteration of Matthew 19. Again, we're going to see this a little bit later where Christ goes back to the beginning before the hardness of the heart. Um, that where Moses allowed divorce. So here, even more explicitly, he's overturning the teaching of Moses. Then he goes on to teach about oaths, which we talked a little bit before, but the heart of this teaching is about being honest so no one doubts your word and you do not need to swear. So basically, if we're honest and we people know that we're honest, we don't need to swear an oath. Because by me having to swear an oath, there's almost this assumption that you're not going to tell the truth. So here it is. It's not just don't tell a lie, but don't bear false witness, but be truthful in all that you do so that people see that. He then goes to the teaching about retaliation, the lex talionis, the eye for an eye, where he says we're going to go beyond that. that mercy should triumph over justice. Turn the other cheek. And then finally about love of enemies. So this is where he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God lets the rain fall and shine fall on both of them. So we should treat our enemies and love them in the same way that we treat our friends. This is an extension of that twofold law of love. But also pointing the fact that being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Christ does not expect perfection from you. He doesn't want a bunch of perfectionists walking around because that creates a bunch of anxious people who drive the priest nuts. You don't need to do that. You need to be patient with yourself. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Then still under this section as he uh, completes and fulfills the old law. Yes. We'll look at the look at the context. The context is he be perfect as as he lets the rain shine on the good and the bad. That perfection that he's talking about in that context is don't just be loving and merciful to the people that you like. Be like him. Let your mercy and your love shine on the people you like and you don't like, on your friends and your enemies. That's the specific context of that passage. Well, I think the way that Jesus expresses it in that context, he's sort of saying, establishing with the context that perfection in this context is loving both. Now, I don't know the Greek word for perfect there. Um, 
and in other areas, this is, it may mean something different. But here, within that specific context, he's talking about the perfection of God, I guess, not in the sense of he is perfect, but in the way that he loves both the good and the bad. He's accomplishing all. That's the way that I interpret in that regards. The next is the fulfillment of the three principal acts of religion. Okay, so we get the first part is the Beatitudes. Second, the fulfillment of the law. The third part here is chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. The fulfillment of the three principal acts of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. All three are about the intention in the heart of giving honor to God and not trying to impress other men on the exterior. So, you know, when you fast, don't don't go look gloomy. You know, smile, clean yourself up. It's what matters on the inside. Um, almsgiving. We're giving not so that others see how generous and good we are, but we're giving because we give glory to the Father. And then even... In his teaching on prayer, this is where we get the Lord's Prayer. We're going to see a little bit more about this later. But praying in private. We're not doing this for show. We're drawing into the interior of our hearts. The next section, Pink Airs, will sort of label as various sayings. Chapter 6, 19 to 7, 11. The first one is about having your treasure in heaven attachment and living for the next life, the light in the body, the need for the custody of the eyes, and so that light, of course, here emanating from the body, the comment of the teaching on God and money, that love of money will be one's downfall, that we ought not rely on created goods. And then that very beautiful passage of dependence on God, Abandonment to divine providence. You know, here are the the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor sweat, but the Lord provides for them. Look at the birds. Aren't you not worth than one person worth more than all of the different sparrows? Let the day's worry be enough for the day. That's such a beautiful passage. Um, and, And here he's using very simple things, flowers and birds, for us to be able to teach us that deeper lesson. He's, that's the, the expression of his moral imagination. The next passage on judging others. We've already sort of explained some of this, that we need to look at ourselves first, to take the splinter of the log out of our own eye before we take the splinter out of our brother's eyes. And so he was really sort of making an appeal to logic that you can't really help others unless you have healed yourself first next pearls before swine and then finally the answers to prayers that god desires to answer our prayers he is a good father again this idea of god the father and his his paternal love for us and then finally it's the conclusion verses chapter 7 verses 12 to 29 and right at the beginning is the golden rule and we could probably have a whole class on the golden rule, and gosh, maybe I should talk more about it, but we all know this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What makes this golden rule unique? 
not unique, but distinctly Christian or not distinctly. How can we tie the golden rule into or connect it to everything we've been talking about now um, with the morality of Christ versus the Old Testament morality? Even though you could say the old te- it was there in the Old Testament morality. Either one. Hammer. Martella, let's go. I think it's a valid point. Yeah, it's not just about justice; it's about mercy. What we want for ourselves. Absolutely, I think it's, it's a very good point. Uh, I think another way of possibly wording that, and part of that is, there's a shift from doing to others what they do to you to doing to others what you want done to yourself. Mm-hmm. There's kind of this shift from, from, well, he's done this, so I will, I will force it back to him. To you know, nobody wants this. Let's me act. So the image is more on myself first. I think that's that's very, that's a very valid point too. Yeah. So we're looking at how we might, if this law, if it was reversed and the law was applied to us, how would we want it? We we wouldn't want the the for them to take the the pound of flesh. Um, I've heard the golden rule in other um, traditions uh, stated in a negative um, uh, structure. Don't do to others as you don't want them to do. Mm-hmm. So that, so it's it's important that it's said in the positive. You know, kind of going back to your gumball story. Um, you know, not everyone. Uh, it's that extra positive life-giving factor. It's a positive um, you know, structure. Um, that's important. That it's positive. I think. Yeah, as opposed to the commandments, where don't do this. Here, I want you to do this. It, it is positive. One more. I, Oh, well, actually, I, mean, I think it's worth exploring a little bit, like the negative connotation that you might have. Like, uh, um, I don't know, because to be honest, uh, I find the golden rule to be one of the less inspiring parts of, mm-hmm. of Jesus' teaching. Mm-hmm. Like, it just feels very imprecise, you know. And, and uh, it, That's the answer I'm looking for. Keep going. Because, like, um, I think this comes out in a more contemporary setting, like, you know, Obviously, it's very different, but you have Kant's categorical imperative, which mm-hmm. is shown to be not enough to form a, a system of ethics, you know, that, that, you know, even as much as you claim that. So it, um, I don't know, like, it, it just doesn't seem very, because you can change the standard, like, with others, as you have done to you, well, if, if your interior standard changes, then your external standard would also change, you know. Correct. And that's one of the things that is a critique of it. And I think particularly now, if you take this in a culture of complete moral relativism, well, if I'm into these weird things and I don't mind people treating me like garbage, well, then what does it really matter? But this idea of its imprecision, I do think is what I was looking for and is important. And while, yes, for the person who is not virtuous, Maybe indeed it enables uh, a flourishing of evil. But for the person who does practice virtue, then instead the imprecision leaves room for creativity.
And I think this is where it's going to become important when we look at freedom in the law, particularly in our world today, where I see a lot of people want everything spelled out for them. They, they want every little detail of their action spelled out. But here, Christ is not doing that. Here, in the Beatitudes in general, but here specifically, he is assuming you have your training wheels of the Ten Commandments, that you're going to want to do the right thing. He's leaving a lot of room for the Spirit to move, and he's leaving a lot of room for prudence, um, which is a scary thing for a lot of people. Could it be abused? Yeah. Um, but yet, does it also leave room for individual development and growth? I think so, too, which is sort of uh, emblematic of the overall point of Christ's teaching. Yeah, he has some very specific things, but there's going to be a lot of room for the Spirit to move in each individual's life. He's not going to ever counteract um, basic principles, but it does leave room for creativity. Well, we can discuss that. We're going to discuss that more when we get uh, a little bit later on. Um, I put it here in the notes, a quote from Pope Francis. Um, he says, this rule points us in a clear direction. Let us treat others with the same passion and compassion with which we want to be treated. So, yeah, it gives a clear direction, but it doesn't tell you exactly the steps that you need to take. He leaves it up to us in following Christ. He goes on to give the example of the narrow gate that, all right, is, as broad as this path may be, it's still a very narrow path. It can be very, very difficult to, to, to make the right choices. He warns about the false prophets and looking for good fruit. Um, the true prophet is the one that we can see from the fruit he produces, which I've always thought about this too. Can you just look at fruit in the exterior and tell if it's good? Huh? Not always. You often got to bite into it. I mean, how many times have you taken an apple and you said, this is a beautiful looking apple. You bite into it and it's rotten to the core. You know, I'll be honest. Back in the, the 80s and 90s and 2000s, a certain religious order that looked really good on the outside, was very shiny, had really good haircuts. Everybody very skinny, very look, looking good. They loved it. I said, this is weird. I don't like it. And then when you bite into it, rotten to the core. Now, granted, there's some good fruit that we found there, that, that we've re rejuvenated it. But you can't always, oh, just because a lot of, they have all this, they have a lot of vocations, that this person is changing people's lives. If you dig a little deeper, it's not always the case. He goes into the true disciple, um, which is the one who doesn't just say things with their mouth, but lives in the heart. And then the two foundations of the house built on sand versus the house built on solid rock. And then if you put the sermon to practice, you're going to be building your house on a solid foundation. So, again, this is just the basic outline. You should know the sermon by now, and there's so much we can get into. But the key point to discuss is this. I was just basically presenting the basic outline. The burning question about the sermon, Father Pinkairs brings up that we need to explore. The first thought, and I remember reading this really for the first time with new eyes, this seems impossible. So sublime, so demanding. 
how can anyone live it out? It surely seems a lot easier to live out the Ten Commandments than to live this. Um, particularly when it's, there is a lack of precision, a lack of concreteness. The, the, the Ten Commandments and the law are very, very concrete. Here, you know, he's telling us these things, but how do we live it out? What does it mean to be pure of heart? Uh, how, how does one detect whether there's good fruit? And so this was the challenge. And there have been, over time, many different answers proposed over the years of what, how do, how do you resolve this? Yes, we see it's, it's so crucial to the Christian life, but yet it seems impossible to live out. And so Father Pinkairs gives a number of them in the sources of Christian ethics. We're going to look at three, three possible solutions. The Ten Commandments are for everyone. Well, the Sermon of the Mount, this is the first one, is meant for a select few, the elite. Basically, for those who are, are really holy, are those who really want to live a life of perfection. So basically, they end up being counsels, not commands. Not directed for everyone. But the response to that is, Jesus is not just speaking to the apostles here. He's speaking to all the crowd. So you can assume it was for everyone. And the fathers, Augustine, who was preaching the sermon, it wasn't just, he wasn't preaching to the seminarians. He was preaching it to everyone. So this one can't work. It can't just be councils meant for the, the, the elite. Some will say it's a social and political manifesto. That what Jesus is saying, we need to lay down our arms, all become comrades, and live in peace. Is this the proper interpretation? No. Because we know that Christ was not speaking of an earthly kingdom. He's not a political messiah. We need to live it out on earth, but he's not basically, Jesus is not Lenin, all right? He's not Karl Marx. He's not Che Guevara. Sorry. And then finally, Luther's interpretation that he read it in light of Romans. The Sermon of the Mount presents us with an impossible task in order to do what? To show us our sins, to show us how weak we are, to show us how much we need God's grace. So basically for Luther, the Sermon on the Mount was like the old law and the fact that we couldn't do it, but only Christ can. And of course, that's unrealistic. Why? Because Christ is giving us the text of the new law that supersedes the old law. And he's giving us grace with it so that we should be able to live it out. So the only real valid answer here is that Christ did mean it for everyone and for it to be followed. Because if Christ was laying impossible burdens on us, if he knew there's no way you people can do this, then Jesus is no different than the Pharisees. He's putting all kinds of things upon them. So there's got to be a way to reconcile it. How is it possible to see the sublime nature of the text of Matthew 5 to 7, of the Sermon on the Mount, and yet believe that we can truly live it out? What's the, what's the linchpin there? What's the, the thing that connects the two that gives us the ability to live this out? So the usual kind of safety net is grace. 
Yeah. It is, but here's specifically the grace of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to go back to, this is the text of the new law. The real law is the Spirit poured into our hearts. Is it something that we will be able to do immediately? No. But as we talked about in the context for the transformation of Christ, over time, many, many failures, the the Spirit will transform our hearts so that we can come to better embody this. We need the power of the Spirit. We need to be living that life in the Spirit. Because remember, the Spirit is the new law. So we're tying the Spirit to the Sermon of the Mount, who brings us to truth, who reveals the true meaning of the Sermon. And the Sermon, in fact, shows us the designs of the Holy Spirit. But it's not something... We're going to just all of a sudden, oh, i got the Spirit, I'm going to live out the new law perfectly. No, not at all, as we're going to see. We are going to fail, but in those failures that we are being perfected. To complete this sort of Trinitarian dimension by first saying that it's Christ who teaches it to us, and he is the one who embodies it, the Spirit giving us the grace, um, there is the Trinitarian dimension. We're going to get into the Beatitudes. I really like Father Philippe's little book on the Beatitudes. How many of you have read this? They Doors the Kingdom. As we're going to see, there's many different interpretations of the Beatitudes. Are there priests to write books about them? Um, but this is a really good one. And I scanned the introduction to it. Father Jacques Philippe. Uh, I scanned it and uploaded the introduction to it, um, which is good with his commentary on the Sermon and the Beatitudes, where he really highlights... Uh, the Trinitarian dimension of how everything comes from and goes back to the Father. Because here, right in the middle, he gives us the Our Father. He talks about praying to the Father in heaven uh, in secret. The Father takes care of the birds and the lilies. And then towards the end, Christ's words express the will of the Father in heaven. So I think a really interesting analysis of praying through the sermon and seeing this idea of, of the filial morality. We, we're going to go back to that. Um, that indeed, if the Father is present throughout all this, um, it shows more of that filial morality. This is the text of how the Son, the beloved Son, would act. But as we draw this to conclusion, there's one other thing to notice that I think gets to the heart of what you said about, oh, well, the, 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 the answer is the Holy Spirit. It's the easy one to answer. When Benedict was Pope, how many of you ever read his homilies on the saints, his Wednesday catechesis on the saints? I, actually, there are certain books that you really need to have in your confessional when you're working on your daily homily in the confessional for the saints. <laughs> where you're going to work on your daily homilies before Mass. Uh, he did a like, thing on the doctors of the church. He did, I think, but the ones of the doctors of the church, he gave these series of homilies. He gave five of them on Augustine. And they're wonderful, like just basic introductions to the saints. And he, he talks about, you know, you have these different conversions of Augustine. The first one is from, you know, his way of sin, to becoming a Christian, sort of entailing his putting away some of his philosophical thinking, to have putting on the mind of Christ. But he talks about the last conversion of Augustine. 
in one of these sermons. And I'm going to give you the whole quote here because it really is is brilliant. This was the quote that I was looking for to give you a last uh, class that I couldn't find, and I remembered where it was. He says, there's a last step in Augustine's journey that brought him every day of his life to ask God for pardon. Initially, he thought that once he was baptized in the life of communion with Christ and the sacraments in the Eucharistic celebration, he would attain the life proposed in the Sermon on the Mount, the perfection bestowed by baptism and reconfirmed in the Eucharist. So again, and you could see some of this in that very early preaching on the sermon. And somehow, yes, through grace, through the sacraments, he could and the Christian could perfectly sort of live out the sermon. This is what we're going to be able to do. But during the last part of his life, he understood that what he concluded at the beginning about the Sermon on the Mount, and this is in a certain sense where as much as we want to look at Augustine to help us understand the sermon, because Aquinas went to Augustine to understand the sermon when he commented on the Summa, that's where Augustine's, this is where Ratzinger says, ah, eh, we've got to hesitate a little bit. Because this idea that now that we are Christians, we live this ideal permanently. That somehow, because you're a Christian, you're going to live this ideal permanently, that the grace is going to impact you in this way, that you're going to become a perfect embodiment of the sermon, was mistaken. So, so this is always something interesting. Like when you take, we, we, we often take the readings of the saints out of context in their life. When, when, did, when did he write the sermon? The very, very beginning. Let me tell you right now, I've been a preacher for 22 years. And I go back and look at some of the stuff I preached 20 years ago. Was any of it heresy? No. But would I phrase it that way anymore? Not at all. This is why I'm redoing this class. A lot of the stuff I would have taught you all 17 years ago, 15 years ago, would be different. Same basic stuff, but I would phrase it differently. So he says, only Christ himself truly and completely accomplishes the Sermon on the Mount. So in a certain sense, yes, Luther was correct. Christ is the one who perfectly does it. However... We always need to be washed by Christ, who washes our feet and be renewed by him. We need permanent conversion. Until the end, we need this humility that recognizes that we are sinners, journeying along until the Lord gives us his hand definitively and introduces us into eternal life. It was in this final attitude of humility, lived day after day, that Augustine died. So, is, is, is he saying that only Christ can live it, so we just don't even need to worry about it? Let's just go back to living the Ten Commandments. No. But by responding to the Spirit, by trying to live it out, we're going to fail. But remember, what do we talk about? What is true holiness? Not being perfect and shining, but being humble. Because every time you fail at living this and realize only Christ lived it perfectly, he is the embodiment of the Beatitudes, then we, in spiritual childhood, as we'll see becomes important, the Beatitudes, will go back to Jesus and say, Lord, I can't do it, but I know you're merciful and I need your grace. So it's only going to be the child that is able to really live this out, who understands that he's weak and he's small, and we're going to talk about this with St. Paul too, and is in need of the Lord's grace. But th this is what's really interesting, which I, Ratzinger mentions in that last homily on Augustine. 
Towards the end of the life, Augustine wrote something which here he translates as the revision, where he looked back and critiqued his own works. Did y'all know that? I didn't know that. Augustine, towards the end of his life, went back and looked after all of his works, it probably took him a long time, and critiqued it. And he wrote in what Ratzinger calls this, Benedict here, this truly original book. I quote, I understood that only one is truly perfect, and that the words of the Sermon on the Mount are completely realized in only one, in Jesus Christ himself. The whole church, instead, all of us, including the apostles, must pray every day, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So, the humility comes from knowing that you're a sinner. And how do you know you're a sinner? Because you don't live up to the, the demands of the Sermon of the Mount, and you fall and you mess up, but you don't despair. And it's through this the Spirit works. So we often think, well, the Spirit's going to work because of these great glories that we have, these great perfections. But, yeah, it may when we overcome sin, but sometimes the Spirit is working in our weakness and our fallenness. We're going to look at the curses pudorum uh, of St. Paul. Have y'all looked at that? Have y'all taken Paul on yet? Yeah, we're going to look at that. Great part of Paul. Only Christ perfectly lives it out, and he gives us the grace to do so, but the way the grace and the Spirit is, is moving most of the time is going to be sometimes when we succeed, but also when we fail. Concluding comments. The sermon has the power to move hearts for the believer and the non-believer. Pink hairs will say the commandments don't really move hearts. I'm super excited about living the commandments. Very few people say that. But the sermon does. Why? Because one can't be excited about simply fulfilling the law. I'm really excited to drive 55 miles an hour today. Also because Jesus here is not speaking to our hearts. He's trying to elicit an interior response because the sermon promises and does not command. It's an invitation to that deeper life. But ultimately, and this is, was so beautiful, and Father Jacques-Philippe sort of quotes this, that Christ is revealing his own heart to draw men to himself. Because if Christ only perfectly lives out the sermon, then he's revealing the nature of his own heart of what purity means, of how he looks at us, of what, how he, if it's true that we shouldn't even hold a grudge in our hearts against other people, that means that Jesus doesn't get angry at you and hold a grudge against you. He doesn't do it. And so it could be a source of spiritual renewal for the lives of the saints, and, and I think for the renewal of moral theology, not only going back to the scripture, as we said, it's not just, let's go back to scripture, Vatican II said, and, and pick out a bunch of quotes, but let's go back to the true, deeper spiritual meaning of the scriptures. So it's going to be the Sermon on the Mount, spending time, reflecting on it, meditating on it, talking about it. But you've got to live it out, to put it into practice, to truly know the meaning. It's the end of the sermon. Whoever hears it and puts it into practice is following my words. Even when you fail. Even when you fail at living it out. And so the proof is going to be in the pudding. At the very end, or we talk about next, the next, the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes talk about things that are struggles, that are very, very difficult. But when you live it out, you experience, that was one of the questions that threw some of you all off, you experience Beatitude on the earth in your joys, 
but also in your sufferings. When you're persecuted, please rejoice because you, the, the Son of Man was persecuted also. So to be able to not get discouraged when we fail at living it out, allow the Spirit to bring us a deeper repentance, go back to confession, have our feet washed, have our feet washed, and then to keep moving forward. So we're going to take a break, come back in maybe 10 minutes, and uh, we will look at the Sermon on the Mount.